In this episode, we talk about some topics that might be triggering. So please do check the show notes for content warnings and feel free to skip this episode if it's not right for you. Hi, I'm Dr. Alex Fullard. I research childhood trauma and embrace at Telethon Kids Institute. You're listening to Embracing the Mind, where people who have experienced mental health challenges share their journey with me. I also talk to researchers about the latest treatments, data, and insights into mental health. Our first guest in today's bonus episode of Embracing the Mind is Talia Blow, a Mananjali and queer woman living in Nam, Melbourne. Now a social worker, Talia shares her experiences growing up as an Aboriginal woman, experiencing discrimination at the same time as learning more about her own identity. Next, we're joined by Noongar woman and Associate Professor Bep Ewink of both the Telethon Kids Institute and Colbardi Aboriginal Centre at Murdoch University. Bet received a grant from Embrace at Telethon Kids to support the creation of a recent community report from her team at Walk and Cudigen, or Rainbow Knowledge. This first of its kind data set captured the mental health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander LGBTQA plus young people. Bep explains what they found and what needs to be done to support this population. Today, I'm joined by Talia Blow, who is from Melbourne. Talia, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for that, Alex. Um, My name is Talia. I am a Mananjali woman from southeast Queensland, but I've been living down in Melbourne now for a bit over a year. My pronouns are she, her, and I have a social work background. Amazing. I'm really excited to talk to you, Talia. For a few reasons, you're a very experienced person, um, despite the fact that you look quite young to me. You've done a lot in your life. Now, tell me, how was it growing up for you as well, a queer Aboriginal young person? I mean, thank you. I always say that it's a retinol, um, but I am <laughs> I, I am older than I look. <laughs> Everyone's always um, quite shocked. I, I'm 31 this year. You got to give me that skincare routine. <laughs> Grow up in Queensland and you'll just be really greasy naturally and then you just look younger. But yeah, I mean, I, I have been uh, doing this stuff, I guess, formally for quite a number of years, but I think for me it does come a bit naturally just because I feel like it's like an extension of my personality and who I am. So I would say, you know, informally I've probably been doing elements of it forever. But, you know, growing up as a, as a queer person in itself was, you know, a, a unique experience, but growing up queer and Aboriginal was, I guess, even more unique, bit of a niche. Um, and I think what's interesting, you know, when I think about it is I always knew I was Aboriginal, but I didn't always know that I was queer. So there was a little bit of uh identity like for me when I was you know obviously you've sent through these questions I'm looking back I think the theme that kept coming up for me was this question of identity I think really there were some great moments uh a lot of strengths within it but for the most part if I'm honest when I look back at that time uh it was really difficult um it was really hard to navigate the individual identities of my queerness and also uh, my culture and I think for a bit I never saw them as two things that could create a whole. They seemed quite mutually exclusive at that point. Right. I'm really interested in, in 
you talking about these two things creating the whole because that is you right like that's your identity and is that different now when you think back on your kind of your childhood and when you were a teenager for sure I I think uh I'm a lot more solid now in kind of who I am uh and that is that yeah I'm I'm Aboriginal I'm queer I'm a social worker I'm all these things uh and they form I suppose who who I am the you know parts of me uh, but certainly, yeah, growing up, it, it seemed more of a siloed, separate type of thing. Um, I think my, you know, my uh, my experience was a little bit different and unique. Um, so my my younger sister had leukemia when we were younger, so she's fine now. But she was diagnosed on New Year's Eve two thousand two, so I had just turned ten at that time, and she was going through treatment for about five years. So from the ages around ten till fifteen. Um, I was, you know, it's kind of the prime years where you're figuring out who you are and those sorts of things. So on top of trying to understand who I was in terms of as an Aboriginal person, as a young queer person, um, I was also, you know, uh, within that medical model, uh, for, you know, learning things that you don't normally learn um, and a lot of energy was, I suppose, you know, within, within the family was towards, you know, making sure my sister was well and, and those sorts of things. I suppose I mentioned that because... I think when other people may have had those experiences, they probably would have had different times to think about or experience, you know, what this means in the broader sense of it. Um, but a lot of that time for me was, you know, spent up at the children's hospital, um, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, you, it sounds like you didn't have space to really explore how you were feeling, your own identity, because you kind of had this this big thing happening with your sister and, you know, it, it sounds as though a lot of energy was spent caring and and probably worrying about your sister. And it sounds like you probably had to grow up pretty quick, hey? For sure. Um, I think that's 100% uh, true. Uh, you know, I think until you've um, been the sibling of a sick kid, it's it's quite a unique experience and one that, I've spoken to a lot of um, other siblings of six kids, six kids. Um, this idea of, I guess your existence is, oh God, I'm trying to think of the word, but like, you, you know, you're there and obviously your parents love you and those sorts of things, but there's a real possibility that their child could become really unwell or, or pass away. And so naturally a lot of energy is just spent towards, you know, how do we keep this child safe and, and well and make sure they get through this treatment. Uh, which then, you know, in turn is a ripple effect on the sibling. So, you know, you kind of are sent to wherever to be looked after and, you know, school's quite hard and, and all those things yeah. that are already really difficult for young people are a bit more magnified. So the space, I suppose, like you said, to really explore and understand who I am was certainly impacted. Yeah, yeah. It's I can I can sort of relate. It's it's very different to that experience. Obviously, that's a very prolonged period of time. Like five years is a long time to be, you know, not knowing how your sister is is going to be, whether she'll survive. But um, I, I do remember when I was a a kid, my sister was born really preterm, and she was in hospital for like six months, and you know we didn't know if she was going to survive. And I I can totally relate to kind of, you know, you don't have space to think about yourself really, and you know, parents aren't really there 
with you 100% because there's just so much going on with the sibling. And I remember like going and just staying with family and it was actually so frustrating, but you kind of didn't have the right to feel frustrated because there's so much else, like there's other stuff going on that is bigger. So I, I couldn't imagine for five years just that being the case and having these changing identities, like like you said, you didn't know that you were queer or you didn't, you weren't born knowing that's kind of something that happened over time. I'd like to kind of explore that a little bit, if that's okay. Sure. What what was that like kind of, you know, coming to terms with that, um, I guess, being different to the, you know, what the norm would be, I guess. We say that with <laughs> inverted commas because what is norms? Um, yeah, what was that like, kind of realising that? Uh, you know, it was, um, I, so I, um, I'm, I'm really lucky. So, you know, my mum has kind of always said, you know, if you, if you ever liked girls, like I wouldn't mind, like from as early as I can remember. Yeah. So I wasn't necessarily, I suppose like it never really felt like a thing until it was, until I was like, oh, okay, maybe this is a thing. And I think like my first kind of, I guess like awareness or, or I don't know, like this question of, oh, I suppose, am I a bit different or, or whatever it is, you know, for lack of a better word. I think I was like 10 or 11 and it was just almost like this, I don't know, like this thought or Mm. I, I can't even pinpoint kind of when it was or whatever. It was just kind of this thing that was like, oh, maybe. And then you know, I was so young, so I didn't really give it any thought. But, and, you know, I'm not somebody that did just, I wasn't just born and new. Um, I was just, mm-hmm. I hadn't, I guess I was really lucky in the sense that I never really just gave it a second thought. And then, uh yeah, I think I was like 12 or 13 or something. And uh, at that time, you know, a lot of my like friends are kind of coming out and that sort of stuff. And I remember just asking one of my friends about it. And I, I think at the time it was like they were saying they were bi-curious or something. And so I was asking mm-hmm. about that. And, and it kind of just went from there. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe – I, I am a bi or whatever, I, I, I'm not sure. And for me, like that kind of question of, I suppose, putting a label on it was a lot of pressure. Uh, mm. And, that, you know, again, this was happening all while Gemma was, my sister was <laughs> sick. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so it was really, um, I think, a lot of internalised, maybe internalised, not homophobia because I, I never, I never, hated myself or whatever for, for being for liking girls or, or whatever that might be but definitely a like why can't I just be like everyone else and why can't I, I yeah. I've never been someone that's wanted to stand out necessarily and then <laughs> I'm you know I'm Aboriginal I'm queer I'm like all these things that just make me which now I'm like yeah this is great like I'm so unique I'm very different but at that time I was, mm, was it would have been so really- hard yeah <laughs> as a teenager you do you just kind of want to like fit in with everybody else especially during that time how did that all of those experiences like you said being aboriginal can sometimes make you stand out and as a teenager 
you know, you said you didn't want that. And then also kind of coming to terms with your sexuality. How did that all, all of that impact your well-being? Yeah. Look, I, I've got, you know, I, I'm pretty open. I have a lot of lived experience around my own mental mm-hmm. health, uh, depression, anxiety, a whole bunch of that sort of stuff. Um, so my well-being was definitely impacted and because my identity, I felt like at that time was so fractured, I was really just hanging out with people where I felt accepted. And that didn't necessarily mean that they were people that were good for me. Mm-hmm. And so my friendship group were, you know, I, I suppose my friendship group at that time, they weren't really great for my well-being. And yeah. that all connected with this this view of self and, and stuff. So it was quite hard and I remember, um, you know, seeing my first, like actually my first social worker um, up at the hospital when I was 10 and then my first like proper experience of therapy when I was about 11 or 12. So wow, that's so young. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty lucky as well to be able to have had access to those things. Mm. Did you find that school was supportive of you? Absolutely not. <laughs> Oh. hated school um and again like you know this whole like I've always known I'm Aboriginal it's always been the <laughs> dad's always said like you know this is mob this is who we are and I look back and I remember like being pulled out of class to go paint boomerangs and to go and do this stuff and then you know you kind of get put back in and as a child who didn't want to stand out it's an experience of the school, I suppose, is trying to quote unquote do what they're supposed to do to meet these, you know, my cultural needs. But the way they do that, it also singles you out even further. Yeah. And I, I didn't like, you know, I know that there was a lot of racism around me, um, but I didn't, I suppose, know it. I didn't feel it until I was maybe nine or ten when someone you know yelled at me on the on the oval to get out of the way and they called me like a you know a slur word for an Aboriginal person I went home and and that was when I really had that experience of oh this is a bad thing because up until that point it always been that you know it's a strength it's great this is who you are uh and that's when I I suppose that was my first like no noticing of that and I think that alongside, you know, and again, at that time, my sister was unwell and I would be up at hospital and I'd come to school and I remember like my desks, my desk was like not where it was and the teachers would be like, where's your homework? And I'd, I'd say stuff like, oh, I was at hospital, I didn't get a chance and they would tell me not to use it as an excuse. So there was a lot of time, like at that time, where it was a really, like I just didn't want to go to school. I didn't have a great friendship group. Uh, I really hated it, to be honest. Mm, I'm so sorry that happened. That's. It sounds like it was an awful environment. What What can school, or what, I guess, do you wish the schools had done differently to better support you? I think at that point in time, and, keep, you know, keep bear in mind this was the early 2000s, so... Mm. I think the way they approached it was very much, 
a reflection of it being the early 2000s, but yeah, had they have, I suppose, tried to actually see what the needs were and trying to support me and, and stuff like that, it would have been a lot nicer. But, again, it was, you know, and I'm, I'm quite lucky because, you know, by the time I got to year 10, 11, 12, uh, a lot of that identity stuff, you know, had started to settle down and I found my niche in terms of what do I enjoy, you know, academically-wise, what do I like to, to learn about. And once I found that niche, uh, those areas became a lot easier. I think that rather than the idea of inclusivity being let's celebrate one person, let's single out these people on, you know, or these young people on one day, I think a better approach is to just celebrate everybody all the time for what they are rather than that singling out. Um, That celebration of young people in itself is huge and if schools can do that, that can create this collaborative and cohesive environment for young people. Mm. So in terms of after school, so you're now a social worker, amazing, such a wonderful profession. Can you tell me what led you to, you know, want to become a social worker? Was it your early experiences? Um, You said you saw a social worker yourself when you were quite young. What led you there? First experience with the social worker, it was just after my sister was unwell. And I remember at that time, the social worker was the first person to ask me how I was doing as a sibling. Uh, And also, you know, she took us to bake a cake or something and we had a picnic on the hospital grounds. And there's a photo from that time. And my sister would talk about like how much she looked forward to the social worker coming around. And so that was a real moment for me where I said, like, I really want to grow up and help people and I want to do this stuff. Uh, And then as it so happened, some of those subjects that I spoke about where I really found my, my niche were just, you know, study of society and those sorts of things. So it really fostered that like, yep, this is what I want to do. And then, yeah, I was quite lucky. Uh, I was able to get into uh, a unit, you know, social work course at um, Griffith Uni and had a lot of support from the Gamari unit, which is their um, Aboriginal, like their cultural support unit at the uni. Um, Mm. And, you know, it was really like the, you know, the auntie that ran it, oh, she was great. And she'd have like frozen pies and, and stuff in the freezer and you'd have printing and 24 hour access and just, those small things and just having mob around you to talk to and share your experiences. Like I, like I don't think I would have finished my degree if I didn't have that support. Mm. And that's really the stuff that a lot of people take for granted. And it's just, it can make such a difference if it, you know, if you're given it. For sure. Having a safe space to go to on campus again, like I'm such a, shy person and especially at that age like uh, so being able to go okay I know that I can go to Gamari do my like readings and have like the fridge there and microwave and those things and not have to navigate my way around a campus and like that in itself for someone who's you know predisposed to anxiety and, and those things like was really really important for me yeah well it sounds like you're absolutely in the profession that you're meant to be and you're making a difference now, which is so cool. Um, tell me about your job. What do you, what do you like about it? Thank you. Um, 
I love my job. I was really fortunate to be, uh, when I finished my undergrad, I was offered a position within child protection. Uh, it really, it became quite obvious, you know, towards the end of my degree that even though my entry to it had been through oncology, child oncology, and that's what I'd wanted to do, I, there's just no way I can do it. So having that, being able to make that shift, like I love it. I wish that's how I came into it, but knowing my limitations and knowing that it just affects me too much. Mm. So, um, yeah, I was able to, I was offered a grad position with child, child protection, which is bittersweet. Uh, I think especially, if, you know, for a lot of mob, but I lasted, I think about three or four months before I was like, I can't, <laughs> I can't do this. Yeah, That's a heavy, heavy position. <laughs> yeah. But I really loved the work itself. And so I was able to move over to uh, like community controlled orgs in that sort of space and really find my feet there. So I, I, you know, I've always got a love for kind of like family support and child protection. Uh, Mm. But in the more recent years, I've specialized in mental health and I do a lot of uh, trauma therapies in particular, a really cool one, which is called, um, EMDR or yeah. <laughs> eye movement uh, desensitization and reprocessing therapy. That's yeah. awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> I, um, I'm really looking at like, you know, how can we get EMDR out to mob? Uh, there's a special uh, protocol for, you know, recent traumatic events and those sorts of things. And I would love to be able to use it with kids that were like me or, or you know, kids um, that have child protection involvement who have had, to be removed from home really suddenly or had those placement breakdowns. And I just think there's a lot of scope there for use um, of EMDR. And I also use uh, quite a bit of uh, dialectical behaviour therapy skills. Um, yeah. So, so for those that do know EMDR, you've got to do a bit of prep preparation uh, before you can start the processing. And so that's where I love to bring in, you know, the relevant skills, not the, you know, CBT type homework stuff because that doesn't work. That's, that is so cool. You're yeah, that I'm really, really impressed by you, Talia. That's awesome. <laughs> so just to kind of finish off, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, so there's the Walk and Cartagen project, and this is a, a project being run through Telephone Kids Institute. And our next guest is going to go into it more, but they've released a community report. And Talia, I know you've read it. I would love to hear the key takeaways that you have from that report. Yeah. Um, I, it's such a great report and so needed. And it's unfortunate, I suppose, in, in terms of the key takeaways, it's unfortunate that we're seeing such a high level of distress still for for young, for young mob, for young LGBTQIA plus mob. I think the, one of the, I think it was like 76% of young people in that report were reporting a really high level of distress still. And I think almost half had attempted suicide in the last 12 months. And for me, it's just like, you know, where, where's the progress? There's so much, uh, it's spoken about a lot more now. There's so much funding that's put into it, but I just feel like it's not directed to the right places because it's not, it's obviously not helping, uh, where Mm. it's needed. And, I think, you know, for me, it's just like, okay, well, how do we do this? And yeah, so that's a real takeaway for me is like, how do we support um, our our mob? But also what really stands out is just the absolute resilience and, you know, how strong these young people are. uh, And they're such change makers. And 
I think, you know, I, I look at some of the stuff that's come out and the ages and these young people are so incredible and I just think that there's no way when I was that age I could have done any of this stuff. Um, so I'm actually like I, I quite like I'm, I admire so many of the the young people that have given their time and their thoughts to the to the project and yeah I suppose where I can support is like okay well how do we take the this stuff and how do I do what I do and try to navigate it and try to reduce these levels of distress. Yep, absolutely. I totally, totally mirror your thoughts. I think there are some pretty amazing young people out there right now and they are the change makers and so are you, Talia. Like you are (laughs) out there doing the work. So thank you and thank you for talking to me today. No, thank you for having me. I love to talk, so... (laughs) (laughs) We do it well. (laughs) So today I'm joined by Associate Professor Bep Ewing. Bep, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Ali. Um, I'm Bep. I am a a researcher and a Noongar woman. I'm an investigator on the Walken Cudigan Aboriginal LGBT Wellbeing and Mental Health Project. Very um, good. And an honorary associate here at Telethon Kids Institute at the Youth Mental Health Team. Yeah, we're lucky enough to work alongside you, Bet, which is awesome. Now, you've brought up the Walk and Cutagen Project, which is great because that's what I'd love to talk to you about today. <laughs> so you're one of the researchers on this project. Can you tell us what it's about? Yeah. So Walk and Cutagen loosely translates to rainbow knowledge in Noongar language. Um, and I think that very much describes the journey we've been on about having knowledge about our rainbow family. Um, it started about five years ago now okay. um, through a lot of community advocacy, actually. So people, organisations like Black Rainbow, um, speaking up and saying, we just don't have any data about the well-being and the mental health of Aboriginal LGBT young people mm. in Australia, despite community members knowing there were real problems, there were real fears among the community that young people experienced what they were calling double discrimination, so racism and homophobia, and real concerns about suicide. You know, community advocates we spoke to knew people, Aboriginal young people who were LGBT and had passed by suicide, but there was no national data available Hmm. to to put forward a case for additional funding. Right. So the project started, um, it was an NHMRC-funded project that came out of that, um, where we first talked with Aboriginal LGBT young people in Perth about their experiences. Um, all of that was co-designed with with young people on the advisory group. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've just now released the report for our national survey of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander LGBT young people's wellbeing, um, which is the largest survey of its kind. Amazing. Can you tell us what you found? Um, not, not surprisingly, there were some really high levels of distress among yeah. that population. Yeah. Um, so 90% of the participants, and this was over 600 participants, um, had high levels of psychological distress. So 90%. 90% uh, had high levels. So the level where you would go and do a screener at your GP, for example, and they'd suggest that you'd follow up with a psychologist or a care plan. Whoa. Um, that that's, was just the standard. That yeah. is like... <laughs> I guess I did expect higher levels mm. than you would find in like, a, a, you know, other populations, but 90% is huge. Yeah. It's a huge majority. Um, right. And and on that, um, 
you know, almost uh, almost half had attempted suicide within their lifetime. Wow. And, we and had, these are young people. These are young people. These We had people as young as 14 in the survey. Oh, my gosh. Um, so that's that's really alarming. But at the same time, we knew that from talking to the community and I think it was really good to be able to demonstrate the extent of the problem mm. um, and give voice to those statistics, so to speak. Um so it's, it's, it's really concerning. We do think it's a national crisis, again, yeah. as advocates have been saying for years, but I think it's really hard to see when you see those statistics on, on the yeah, page. Yeah, on, on paper, yeah. Yeah, how, um, how difficult it is. Um, but, you know, we, we're talking to the youth advisory group around this, around what do you want people to know based on these findings? Mm. Um, and I think that it's important to get those statistics out, but also the idea, you know, one of our advisory group members said just that we exist. Yeah, let let people know that being Aboriginal and being queer is an identity that exists. Yeah, and we're here. Yeah, um, there was also lots of other. You know, there's definitely strengths um, in the survey. So there was some high levels of well-being. You know, in terms mm. of being connected to culture, um, but more more common than not, things like discrimination, again, racism, transphobia. Um, you know, were pretty common, which is yeah. disappointing to see. It is. I guess is this kind of like the first step in, okay, we know the lay of the land now, we know it's not good, but we've got to do something about it now. Like it's out on paper, we know it's there. Yeah, it's um, so it's, it's been a really it's been a really great project in that we've tried to build in those what I'm calling or what we tend to call these moments of translation in discovery science. Okay. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, we're trained as discovery scientists, right, to, to find what's going on yeah. about a problem and, yeah. you know, we often explore. talk, yeah. <laughs> explore. We often talk in mental health about then what do we do about the problem? We leave that to the clinicians. Yeah. But as researchers, we're so much in this space. There were these all along with working with our partners where were these tiny moments of translation that could take place. So yeah. any times we could connect young people um, with services that could talk about um, where they could have conversations around what it was like for them being Aboriginal mm. and queer, we could do that. And what actually came out of this piece of work was, young people perhaps feeling like their elders wouldn't accept them for being LGBT. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes that was a a misperception and sometimes elders are really accepting. And we happened to work with a a really fantastic bunch of Noongar elders who were very accepting and very open Mm. to finding out more about um, gender and sexuality. Um, and so we we ended up getting a small amount of funding along the way to to film a project which was making TikToks, modelling. Oh, I love it. Yeah, you know I love TikToks. You know you I know you're the TikTok <laughs> queen. So, um, but you know, modelling a healthy conversation. Elders were saying to us, "We don't know how to talk about this with our young people." Yeah. And young people were saying, "We're too scared to talk to our elders about this." And so we thought, "Why wait? Let's yeah, let's try let's, and bridge let's that. Let's try gap. and bridge that gap." Yeah. Um, and so that was our what we ended up calling Pride Yarns, and then it was such a lovely experience to sit in those in those yarning circles with elders who offered reassurance to young people and young people then to talk about their experiences and their identities mm. um so that's that's what we're really excited about next in terms of okay this is actually a cultural intervention this is intergenerational yeah. care um so we're lucky enough to have some funding to now test that out okay that's that is so cool mm. and i think other researchers could definitely um you know take some pointers from from you guys on this project I also noticed on the on the Walk and Cuttagen sort of like page where people can find more information if they would like to, um, you are well. The team are talking to professionals in this in this space, so kind yeah. of like another layer of translation. Absolutely. Um, why do you think that this is important to do, and what are you finding in this space? 
So again, one of the first thing, one of the first things that came up in our conversations with ARCOs in particular, so Aboriginal community controlled organisations, yep. is we want to help. We're open. We just don't know what to say. Hmm. And they're, you know, there are amazing trainings in inclusivity around. There's Pride in Diversity. There's um, a Rainbow Tick accreditations that some of our ARCOs were considering but noticing that there wasn't a cultural lens mm. to those trainings. Yeah, right. So they kind of took, they could get one side of the story but not that kind of, you know, absolutely. That, what is it called, intersectional lens, yeah, I guess. absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, these are large accreditation processes for, for organisations to invest in. So you want to making sure that you're getting bang for your buck, that, yeah. you're, that you're actually going to get training that's going to help the young people you serve. Um, and so that spanned our, um, spurred our training project where we um, – you know, we, we went and did a full needs assessment with some ARCOs and some experts in Australia around, okay, well, what are the training needs around working in a culturally responsive way but in an inclusive way? Mm. Um, and now we have the fun task of designing that training with them, which oh, is cool. what we're doing at the moment. So um, really fun co-design sessions to think about, okay, so how are we going to tackle the elder issue? How are we going to tackle the, the issue of men's business and women's business in mm. a culturally respectful way? Mm. Um, and we actually find there's there's a lot of empathy in our service workers around. Well, we won't we know what it's like to be discriminated against as Aboriginal people, mm. and we don't want that happening based on homophobia or transphobia yeah. in the services that we run. So yeah. we want to be able to to make sure young people feel safe here. That's really cool. Yeah. I'm really interested in your methodology, like behind your research. Mm. Um, so you're talking about, you know, having a, a culturally sensitive lens and, and working with people with lived experience. So you yourself an ab- Aboriginal woman and there are people on the team who are on the LGBTQA plus spectrum. Yep. Now, I also want to know about this thing called social emotional wellbeing. Mm. So I have to admit this is a newer phrase for me. Mm. I think I learnt it maybe four years ago-ish, three, four years ago. Can you yeah. tell us what it is? It's, yeah, it's um, the model's been around for a bit, but um, the way I kind of explain it to students when I'm teaching it is, you know, when Western psychology and psychiatry in particular came came through mm. and, and tried to diagnose Aboriginal people with, mm. a, with a set amount of disorders that we yeah. have in the DSM, um, for example, um, it's very. It was very limited, right? It was yeah. just um, trying to understand behaviours through a Western lens, and often like a not strengths-based lens as well. Yeah, like exactly. very um, deficit model, sort of like there's something wrong with you. Yeah, and 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 through through that's the purpose of the DSM, right? That's yeah. the purpose of diagnosis, but it's not really a holistic way to look at health. It's not a holistic way to look at health for anyone mm. um, and well-being. So Graham Gee and colleagues um, and some Aboriginal psychologists did this national consultation around what does it mean to be well as an Aboriginal person? Mm -hmm. So what are the indicators that psychologists need to look like, look Mm. for in us to actually fully understand our health and to see if we are thriving or really unwell? Now, being connected to your mind and emotions and having, you know, stable thoughts and being in touch with reality and being able to regulate your emotions, that's all part of that, which Mm. we would traditionally look at as a psychologist mm. but we have more holistic things like how how much do you feel like you're connected to your ancestors yeah do you have opportunities to be on country or connect with country do you have opportunities to be part of your community and you are you part of a functional community um where your th- your cultural practices are allowed to thrive yeah um and so we see that in more holistic models of well-being now anyway mm. um mm. coming through in western psychology um, so it was it was an attempt to go, look, there's more to health than just psychological disorders. Yeah. Um, and we need to be focusing on all these factors. So 
that got brought into the project um, quite organically because when we were looking through the transcripts of what young people had said in their in their interviews, the, the most common thing that came through was this either wanting a sense of, sense of connection to their family mm. or their community or that being the thing that kept them going. Yeah. Um, and the central mechanism of, of that well-being model, social and emotional well-being, is connection. So having connection in all of those domains right. of country and culture. So it was a really nice fit, a really nice mm. theoretical fit. Yeah. And so we made sure in our survey to, to measure all those domains. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you measure it? Is it like are there questionnaires or is it questions that you ask? Yeah, there's, it's definitely um, an emerging area in research. Mm. Um, so a, a team, you know, Ray Lovett's team at ANU has done some great work in making some, some scales mm. for family functioning and connection to culture and yep. country. Um, some of those we, we borrowed from other measures. There weren't a lot around, so some of them we developed in ourselves oh, cool. um, for the survey. But things like, you know, how much time do you spend engaging in cultural practices? Yeah. How much time do you spend learning about your cultural practices? Yeah. And lo and behold, we find um, in our analyses that if young people feel accepted by their elders, they're going to spend more time. Mm. You know, that's associated with spending more time in cultural practices, mm. and, which is our proxy for being connected to culture. Um, so these are all parts of people's lives and their experience that impacts their well-being, but they're not often cop- captured in Aboriginal research. Yeah. It's really important for us to capture um, Indigenous conceptualizations of well-being yeah. alongside our more traditional, you know, suicide and distress data. Yeah, well, it sounds like it, it's it's such a holistic model, mm. and it seems to me like it would be helpful for everybody. Yeah, you know, absolutely. like everyone in Australia could could. Or in, I, you know. I do. I do it every every year. So every year, I get to teach a um, Aboriginal science lecture, which, yeah. is, which is fun to to predominantly non Indigenous students, and I and I walk them through yeah. the social emotional well being assessment, and yep. you know, I say how much do you get to know about your culture, and how much do you get to participate in a community, and that they're pretty good at it. So I think it has broad applicability. Yeah, agree, yeah. agree. Yeah. So I'm I'm interested in in what you think about this as well. So we know that in Trans Pathways. Have you heard of that? This mm. is a, another report from Telethon Kids Institute. Yes. Um, they were looking at, you know, not specifically Aboriginal populations, but looking more at like trans young people. Yeah. And they found that they also had some really confronting statistics around suicide and suicide ideation. So thinking about suicide. Now, you mentioned before really high rates. Did you say half? of the population had attempted suicide? Almost, yeah, about 45%. That's so concerning, Mm. so concerning. What do you think about kind of like the added layers here of, you know, that intersectionality, being Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander and also being on the LGBTQA plus spectrum, you know, around mental health specifically? Yeah, there's definitely on par with the trans pathways findings. Um, Trans and gender diverse young people in our survey were not doing well, right, Mm. overall. So um, twice as likely to experience um, having had a suicide attempt. Wow. Um, We had about... Was that, sorry, in the, like, the the trans and gender diverse young people twice as likely Mm. compared to other... Compared to sexually diverse young people in our our sample. Yeah, so it's it's a real um, risk factor we think around. And, you know, talking with community, our elders themselves say, this is the thing we don't understand the most, right? We kind of understand sexuality, diversity. We really don't understand what's going on in this trans space. Um, And I think there's been at least from a Noongar perspective, some community recognition that we need to have some answers going mm. forward to, to non-binary and, and trans young people around their role in culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, 
we had some beautiful expressions from elders around, you know, if you don't know whether you should go on men's or women's country, listen to your spirit because your spirit knows where to go. So yep. let that guide you. And that's really affirming, I think, yeah. and really celebrating. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, this year's um, reconciliation walk had a rainbow path. Nice. Um, you know, because they had a men's path and a woman's path and then a rainbow path. Okay. Um, so some of our young leaders organised that as well um, to make sure there are spaces for non-binary people in our cultural celebrations yep. where historically they haven't quite been there. Mm. Yeah. So, again, watch this space. More needs to be done. But Absolutely. hopefully on the right path. Yeah, I think so. So I would like to know what you think the, the key messages are especially around this report that need to be spread to, you know, governments, people who work in healthcare, clinicians. Absolutely. What do you think? I, I think that it's the key message for first for communities and family is yep. to is is to celebrate Aboriginal LGBT young people in your lives. Yep. Reach out to them, tell them that they you love them. There's a lot of miscommunication that's happening where young people are feeling like their family don't accept them and their family are kind of tiptoeing around conversations. Mm be brave and have those conversations and show love. Yeah. Um, but for governance, I mean, governments, the statistics show we, we need specific funding streams for services for Aboriginal LGBT people. Yep. Um, we need specific um, positions available in our ARCOs and in other health services to assist with training. Yep. Um, so pride officers, for example, um, and we need to make sure that Aboriginal LGBT people are part of the policy agenda as a, as a subgroup um, that needs uh, additional considerations. Yep. Awesome. More representation. Yeah. 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 And finally, what's the next step? So many, so many <laughs> next steps, um, which is fantastic. Um, so we're, we're going to plan a roadmap forum for WA in, in late November to to bring everyone who's been working on the project, community elders, young people, and our service providers together to really map out what does need to happen in this sector. Um, and then we've got, yeah, our Pride Yarns intervention, which we'll launch next year, which is, again, bringing Aboriginal LGBT young people together with their elders mm. um, to discuss that intersection of culture and gender and sexuality and testing whether that's an actual a model that can improve people's well-being. Amazing. Yeah. Can't wait to see it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Beb. No worries.